It's definitely been a, a, a bit of a weird week in light of everything uh, happening with Pastor Joe. And with that, he's asked me to bring the Word of God before you guys today. And of course, I'm always honored and, and glad to do so. I'm happy to do so, um, despite the circumstances. At least one person is excited. Um, don't tell Joe. Um, <laughs> no, we're going to have a, a great time together, and we're going to take a break from our, our study in First Peter, and um, I got the opportunity just a little bit over a month ago to preach to you guys, and I've been studying through the book of Philippians with the youth group on Wednesday nights, and uh, when I'm asked to preach on a just short notice, I typically go with whatever I have been studying this week and whatever I feel compelled and convicted by the Spirit in through my own study, and that is back in Philippians, of course. Um, so I'm going to invite you guys to come back with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking in chapter 2 now, however. I preached my sermon just over a month ago in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be in Philippians 2 looking at verses 14 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn there with me, we'll read our text as we begin and we'll get started. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Sorry, I said 18, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. As we begin, I ask you to draw your attention to one verse in particular, and it's verse 15. We find here that the Apostle Paul is concerned about one primary thing in the life of the believer. If you read with me in verse 15 again, Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Here the Apostle Paul reminds the believers in Philippi and us believers who we are in Christ. In two separate ways here we see in verse 15 that we are referred to as the children of God and we are referred and qualified by the, these children as being blameless, innocent, without blemish. And the location that we reside as believers who are children of God is amongst a generation that is both crooked and twisted. If you are to describe the world in any way, if someone was to ask you, how would you describe and define the world Maybe you have many ways that you would define it and describe it. Maybe you think it's round. Maybe you think it's flat. If you think it's flat, you've got a problem. We'll talk later. Maybe you would describe the world as beautiful, loving, kind, gracious, but not for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul defines it in two very unique ways. And the two ways that he describes the world is both crooked and twisted. Crooked, the word is in the Greek scolios. Now when you hear that word, maybe you think of the word scoliosis. Maybe you think of the spine. And there's actually a little bit of a connection there actually from the Greek word scolios. But the word means to be bent, to be deviated from a standard of norm. 
as a beam of wood, when it gets wet and becomes more and more dry, can become easily warped, crooked, scolios. It's used often literally in the first century as to describe winding roads or curving and twisting rivers. But in a spiritual sense, it is a word that is often used to describe immorality. A natural bend from the standard of what is the moral standard that we've been given. A slight deviation from the purity and holiness that God has called us to. In Proverbs 21, verse 8, the same word scolios is used in the Septuagint. Proverbs 21, 8 reads, The way of the guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. The second word that Paul uses to describe the world is the world twisted. To twist, to bend, to dislocate, to be backwards, to be perverted or deluded is used literally in Paul's day to convey the basic idea of distorting the shape of pottery before it's put into the fire, rendering it useless. Here in Philippians chapter 2, however, both of these words are used in the perfect tense. And why that matters is because when it's used in the perfect tense, it shows a permanent condition. The world is in a permanent condition that is both crooked and twisted. We don't have to go far to understand this. We see it every day. We see how the world is crooked. We're naturally inclined towards sin. We see the world and how it has an obsession with things like alcohol, money, the comforts of this world. There's misplaced priorities, constantly broken families. We could say that to be a crooked generation is to be a generation that is driven by the flesh. Just this week, down in Puyallup on Wednesday night, actually, a man walked into a barber where an eight-year-old boy was getting his hair cut. And this man shot the barber multiple times in front of the eight-year-old boy that was getting a haircut. Why does this happen? This happens because this world is crooked. It's because men love self and they're hateful in their hearts. And in that, in that crookedness, in that deviation from what is right and pure and good, man can act in this generation in such wicked ways. However, with the word perverted, the extremity of what is crooked and just bent, how is this world perverted? Well, just by way of reminder, just this week, from the University of Florida, the quarterback was arrested by having possession of child pornography. Just this last week, just recently, the Respect for Marriage Act is passed, which now represents and reflects that a marriage is beyond just that between a man and a woman, beyond what God's standard is and God's design for marriage. America has now said, we recognize what God's word has said, now we want something else. That's just this week. 
How did the world get to this point where every single day we're living among the dead? The answer, thankfully, is in God's word. Romans chapter 1 gives a clear insight to this. Romans chapter 1, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but just real briefly, God's word says in Romans 1 that these people that are divulging in the flesh, how do they become so twisted? How do they become so perverted? It's because they have decided to worship the creature rather than the creator. They have decided to suppress the truth. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And in this, God has given them up to a debased mind. The word debased, let me just put it clearly for you, a broken mind. A mind that doesn't work. A mind that doesn't think properly. And in verse 32 of Romans 1, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's a twisted generation. And that twisted generation that was alive during the apostles, Paul's life is the same generation that we live amongst. A generation that is obsessed with self and sin. A world that is guilty, that is blemished, that has no reverence or fear for God, that is disobedient, that is unsatisfied, that is divisive. It's looking for joy in the wrong places. What do we do? If this is the true outlook and worldview believers are to have on the world, the great question then is this, how do we live in this world? First John chapter two, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world. Okay, we know that. Clearly we do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Similarly, Jesus says in John 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would not love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The believer does not belong in this world. Your identity, my identity, does not reside here. Our passport says foreigner on it. And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses in this letter to the Philippians. How does the church respond to the outside world? And our text today gives us the most clear, the most precise answer to this question, namely at the end of verse 15. What does Paul say? As you're living in this world that is both crooked and twisted, you're a child of God. And among them, you shine as lights in this world. It's in the second person. You, you shine, believer. It is you, that you are a light in this dark world. And we don't have to go far to understand this, right? We see it in movies, we see it in shows, that there is a difference between light and darkness, right? 
The good team is always the light. The bad team is always the dark. The good is always light. And we in Christ are in the light as he is of the light. And this has been always God's plan. Back even in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, God's plan is that his people would be a light to the world. That all the world, that all the, the, the generations and the people and the nations would gather and look to God's people as the light. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, very familiar passage. You are the light of the world. Man, believer, this is who you are. And a light cannot be hidden under a basket. A light needs to be shown. A light needs to be displayed so that what is in the dark can be seen. And the tool that God uses to accomplish this is you. You are the light of the world. If you are in Christ, you are. This is the message from the beginning, that God is light. So what now? What does the Apostle Paul have to say for us about this? And I want to encourage you guys that this is going to be a very practical sermon for us. This is going to actually give you something of substance because of what the gospel has done, because of who you are in Christ. How do we live in this world? The gospel witness, you and me, we have work to do if we want to shine in this dark world. And that's the point of this sermon today. We've got work to do, believer, especially in a very, very dark city, both literally and spiritually. In December, it is dark. <laughs> Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18 reveals four practical ways believer, how we can better shine as lights in this twisted, perverted, dark world. How do we live? Well, the first way to live is very simple. It's this, be thankful. You want to set yourself apart from the world? Be thankful. And that's not just to say, be a thankful person, but express your thankfulness. Look down with me in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I don't know how anyone can read that and think, I'm good to go. Check that off. All right, let's go to the next verse. Great, Jonah. It's so convicting even this week as I was studying this. How often do we express our ungratefulness as believers? Our lack of gratitude, even in such small ways. That's just one side of it. How often do we, in our hearts, hold back and conceal an ungrateful attitude? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, what makes this so wrong? I mean, we, we all do this. Like, what's the point? Like, what does it matter if I just complain a little bit? My food's too cold. Okay. Like, what, what a bit, who cares? Like, I'm just complaining. I'm venting, right? We often use that as an excuse. We say, oh, I'm just venting. Don't I have a right to complain at least sometimes? But if you really stop and consider how often we complain, it's quite often. There's some research that I looked up on many different articles and websites that say we, on average as humans, complain roughly 15 to 30 times a day. Roughly every 30 minutes, every 32 minutes, we complain about something. 
There's a whole science that goes into why even complaining has psychological issues and problems that can come out of just being a complaining person that I'm not going to go into. But from a spiritual side of it, we complain far more than we ought to. And if you knew me as I was growing up, as a child, I was quite a picky kid and teenager. Growing up, I've gotten a lot better, but there's one food in particular that my mom used to make that without fail, I would complain every single time. And we call it white chicken chili. And it was... In my mind, the worst chili, the worst meal. I come home after a practice. I come home after a game. I'm hungry. I want like just a ribeye. I want some pizza. And I come through the door and I smell it. And I see it over in the pot. And I just know that I'm just going to starve tonight. And there was much grumbling. There was much complaining amongst me. And what it did is it actually encouraged my brothers to complain as well. As I, the older brother, was leading by example, they would follow suit. And if I complained, they would complain. And as we complained, my mom would be so discouraged and it would weigh on her to the point where she no longer makes it because she knows that we as kids would just complain. That's just one example. And upon reading this verse, there's so much more. I mean, even in the office here with the pastors, we complain about the weather. I felt convicted about that as well. Because the joke here in Seattle is what? It's a great sunny day. Oh, it's beautiful. And then you go up to someone, hey, how nice of a day is it? And he looks at you and he goes, hey, but hey, the rain's coming though. Without fail, right? Hey, don't get too excited. I'm just going to put a, I'm just going to wet towel over your excitement right now and just tell you that there's reason to complain because the rain's coming. Certainly we do this, right? But the Apostle Paul says, do all things without. In everything you do, and everything you say, everything you think about, do it in the context that is without, that is cut off from both grumbling and disputing. The word grumbling, as we've obviously understand it to be, is the word complaint, whispering, private talk, murmuring. We know from Exodus that the Israelites were masters of this, that they were master complainers. They complained about food. They complained about the manna so much so that they were just like, Lord, just kill us now. I wish we stayed in Israel or in Egypt. They complained about everything there that they had despite God's redemption. The word disputing is the word to argue, to discuss with divisive intent. And this was problematic in the early church as Paul is writing for the church to be unified. The importance of that. And this is why Paul spends such a great deal of time, even now, being so clear that believers do all things do all things without grumbling and disputing and everything rather be grateful, be thankful, be thankful with your finances, be grateful and thankful for what's happening in this world with your home, with your spouse, with your family, if you're single. Life in Bellevue is hard. 
We need to leave. We need to go to Texas. Does God not have you here for a reason? If you're complaining about it here, you'll complain about it there. And it is safe to say that complaining affects generally everything, spiritually, emotionally, and in the physical world. I'm not going to continue to exhaust now the different ways that we complain, but I do want us to ask the question, why do we complain? Do we complain because we're unhappy or uncomfortable? We complain when we feel a sense of entitlement to something that we don't have, whether that's objects or a feeling. Thomas Watson says, murmuring is the rising up of oneself against God. It sets oneself against God as if I am wiser than he. When we stretch our understanding of what complaining actually is, it's not just a few comments here and there to express a heart of unthankfulness. For the believer to complain is a complete offense against a sovereign God. As if we know better than him as if we know what's better for us. The believer in Christ has been shown more mercy and love than anyone or anything can understand in this life. We've been given life when we deserve death. We've been given hope when we deserve failure. We've been given the surpassing knowledge and the treasure of heaven when all we deserved was the righteous wrath of a holy God. In all of this, how can we still ever complain? we complain when we become more concerned about our own desires instead of the desires of others when we fail to remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves we complain when we let our pride creep into our hearts and minds and at the bottom line We complain when we forget Christ. You want to not complain? Because I don't want to complain. I want to be a grateful person. Paul gives us the answer. Know Christ intimately. Know Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11. Which describes a man who had every reason to complain but instead continue to entrust himself with a thankful, grateful attitude to his father. And if that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. The most grateful believers are the ones who understand the gravity of their past sinful condition apart from Christ and feel unworthy of their present relationship with him now. Isn't that so true? That the people you know who are grateful may be one of the most godly people in your lives because they know what they've been saved from. Why do we need this? Why does this matter so much? Well, that's what Paul says in our second point. The second point, kind of linking these together like a a chain link. The second point is this, is be pure. In verse 15, look with me. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. See the connection there between the two. He says, be grateful. Do nothing that is out of grumbling, complaining, or disputing. 
so that what would be true of you is that you are a blameless, pure, without blemish child of God. There's a direct correlation here with the attitude of thankfulness to your gospel witness. That's how effective a thankful heart is, believer. Do you think about that often? That when you're complaining, when you're, when you're expressing a heart of disgratitude amongst believers and unbelievers, it actually has the power to discredit your faith. On the other side of that, when circumstances would dictate a heart that is complaining, when you have reason in the eyes of the world to be ungrateful, yet in that you say, you know what, it's all good. I'm thankful because God's in control. I've got no reason to worry. How powerful is that in your witness, in your testimony to the watching world? To put it simply, to ruin your testimony is to be ungrateful. 101, witness 101 class. If you are ungrateful, you will ruin your testimony. This is why. And that's what leads us into the second point is that we want to be pure. We want to be blameless, innocent, without blemish, children of God. The three descriptions that modify the child of God, that they're blameless, that they're without defect, they're faultless, but they're also innocent. That is to say that they're unmixed or unpolluted with evil. They're without blemish. It's a very similar, similar word to the word blameless, but it's it's stronger. It's deeper. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It is called to a call to persistent moral purity, both internally and externally. And these are the marks of the child of God who desires to see the world saved. Proverbs 28, 18, he who walks blamelessly, same word here in Philippians 2, will be delivered but he who is crooked will fall at once. This lifestyle to be pure, both in your thoughts and in your life, in your heart, and in the things that you say, all of it is directly connected to your witness. That is to say also that the one who is full of blame, who is guilty, who is full of blemish, will not shine as they ought to. These are not the descriptions of what it means to save yourself, but rather the one who has been saved, who has been cleansed, who has been made righteous in the presence of a holy God, now has reason to live a life of obedience to him, of purity. This is the description of the believer in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. If you had time, we'd go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8, which talks about the will of God for the believer's life. It's quite simple. It's this, your sanctification. And right after this, he says that we would be sexually pure, that we would abstain from sexual immorality, unmixed, unstained, set apart from this world. 
You want to be different from the world and actually have an impact, believer? Be pure. Cultivate a lifestyle of purity. Be pure in the small things, men, so that you can be pure in the grand things, the great things, the harder trials. Take every thought captive in your heart and in your mind and seek to apply the word of God. Be pure. Focus on the gospel. Focus on Christ as Paul is focused on Christ. And when we do that, this is how we live together in this world. This is how we live together in this crooked and twisted generation. Maybe you're wondering, man, how? Like, I want that. I want to be pure. I've been struggling with my purity in my walk, in my life, in my thoughts, in my words. Jonah, I want to be pure for the world. How do I do that? Well, Paul gives us the way. Look at verse 16. Among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. And that's our third point. It's this, be holding fast. Believer, you want to be pure. You want to be thankful. This is it. The reason I say be holding fast is because it reflects this text and what it says. The word holding fast. It's a word that when I first studied it, I had in mind of like an anchor to a ship. That the anchor is sunk deep into the earth and it's holding fast for this massive ship. That's kind of my understanding of it. But the word in the Greek, apeko, is actually the word to hold out. Not to hold on to and grip to so that way if you let go, then you're stranded. But rather hold on to so that you can hold out. To hold out as a torch, to give attention it's the word Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch, a peco, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this is it. We hold fast to the word of life, to the word of God. Here in Philippians, however, the word is used in the present active participle. I'm getting into some grammar now, but it's important because it stresses a continual action it's not a one and done. It's not something that you're saved and then boom, you're good to go. And like, man, yeah, I'm holding on to the word of life. No, it is a persistent. It is a continual call for believers to daily commit themselves, to hold, to cling, to devote themselves to the word that brings life. And in doing so, you will shine. You will be more pure because it is through the word of God that we're sanctified, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As we read in Hebrews chapter four, the word of God is a two-edged sword. It pierces, it divides, it fixes, it purifies. That's why we cling to it. That's why we hold on to it tight and we hold it out and it, we let it lead us and we let it guide us through this dark world. It's almost even to say that the light that we shine in this world is evident and it is reflected as we hold the word of God before us. That the light that we have is really just a reflection of the light that God has given us through his word. That's amazing. That encourages me to be in the word more than ever. John Piper says, 
that the, the word of God is the fuel to our lamps and without it, we will grow dim. So believer, be holding fast. This informs why we do what we do as a church. This is why I'm up here with this book that was written thousands of years ago. Because we want to make a practice of this every Sunday, every day, that we would not abandon the instruction for us to be both pure and grateful in this world. And we need to do it together. So be holding fast. We'll move on to the next one because we're running out of time. But the fourth point is this, is be spent. Right after this, Paul says, be holding fast so that the day of Christ, I may be proud that I not run in vain or labor in vain. His concern and his desire was to be confident that as he stood before the Father, he could then point to the believers in Philippi and say, look, Father, they have continued in what you've entrusted to me. They have held fast to the word of God. And in verse 17, he says, and even in this life, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What a man. What a man. Listen, believers, even if I'm to be poured out, remember, he is in a prison cell in Rome. He is in jail. He is already being persecuted for his faith. And he says, hey, listen, if I am to be poured out completely, poured out the idea that he is being emptied that he is exhausting every last ounce of energy and devotion in his life. And if I'm to be poured out as a drink, the simile there, the imagery that we have, like we have a cup and we're pouring out every single bit of the life of Paul. He says, even, even if, the conditional statement, even if I pour out everything that I have for your faith, even my own life, Believer, I am glad and I rejoice because it wasn't in vain. All my labor, all my work, it wasn't empty. It actually has substance and it has accomplished something and it is your salvation. And for that, it is worth it. I want to be like that. I want to pour out my life. I want to have that same desire and conviction that I would desire to see as many people saved. And the reality is, is that many of us in this room can sympathize with the Apostle Paul through this whole thing until this point. We get here and we say, I want to pour out my life. Wait for the faith of others. No, no, I'll pour out my life for my son's baseball team. I'll pour out my life for my work and my money and my labor. I will pour out my life into my fantasy football team. I'll pour out my life in anything that is temporal and that doesn't have eternal impact. But when it comes to the faith in Christ and other people, it is so much more difficult. But why? The reward is here. And Paul is showing us that in this he has a joy he has a gladness that nothing in his life prior to knowing Christ could ever match up to. So the encouragement for us is, man, let's be spent like Paul. Let's be exhausted. Let's be squeezed out in this life. For Paul, that meant even his life just a few years later. Our fifth and final point for time is this. It's very simple, very consistent theme through Philippians is be joyful. 
May believers should be the most joyful people in the world. And that joy comes from a heart that is thankful. Paul says, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, he says, share my joy. Paul has a joy, and he's saying, share, be a part, come into the joy that I have in Christ. Why? Because this is the way. This is the result. This is the manner of the life of the person that has been saved by the blood of Christ. The joy of our salvation, certainly. The joy of ministry together with one another who have been forgiven of sins. The joy of the unity. And the joy of sharing in the sufferings for Christ. For the Philippian church, how compelling would this have been for them? As they've been praying for Paul, they've been pleading to be with him. As he's been persecuted, as he's suffered, as he's been imprisoned, as he is living in a crooked and twisted generation as a great example. And he says, hey, I'm good. I'm full of joy. Although my life is poured out on the altar of your faith, my cup is filled now with a joy that can last for eternity. Share that with me. So convicting, so compelling. There's so many reasons to be joyful as believers. For time, we'll wrap up. But the question then is this, now what? What do we do? We've been given some clear applications for us from this text We need to be content. We need to be in the word. We need to sacrifice. Find ways out of love to sacrifice for one another as Christ has. Acts 17.6. This is where we'll end. I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles there. To Acts 17.6. As we live in a crooked, twisted, perverse world, what is our duty And I love this text as the believers are in Thessalonica. They drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. These men who are preaching Christ, who are persuading the crowds, who are doing what we have just read in Philippians 2. And look at what the accusation is against these believers, these faithful men. Verse 6 of chapter 17. These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. They're switching back. They're turning back what was crooked and they're making it straight. They're taking what was twisted and they're making it pure and good. That's what the power of the gospel does. So believers, church, Let's do this together. Let's commit ourselves to this task as we shine as lights in this world that we would first look look inwardly at our own gratefulness, our own purity, and that we would extend outwardly as Christ has in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word, and we thank you for the example that we see through faithful men like the Apostle Paul. Not only him, many other men like Jason, as even as as we've read in Acts. Men like Timothy, men like Epaphroditus, who have just committed themselves to this high calling. The calling that is for every believer to be a light in this world. Father, may we shine. 
as we are grateful. Lord, it's hard at times. It's convicting at times as we often look to ourselves first. But Lord, may we look to you as we commit ourselves to your word, as we hold fast to the promises that you have given us. Life evermore with you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.